Lord, we are thankful for our day of life that you have given us. We're thankful for the ability to come here as a local body to, to worship you today. For each one of us who are here today, Lord, has prayed that each one of us have open eyes and open ears for what it is that you have for us to receive today. As uh, Joel comes up here to deliver the word that you prepare through him, just uh, anything that he may be struggling or wrestling with, Lord, I just pray that it's done with him, that he's able to come up here and freely uh, serve you through the delivery of the word today, Lord. And so ultimately pray that each one of us today be easier to see you uh, bigger and more sovereign today. In Jesus' name, amen. And we'll read it together. Um, I ask you to join me as you're able and stand for reading that. Now, as a tradition here, um, we have a little bit of uh, a formal procedure. I will read the passage and say, This is the word of the Lord, and ask you to respond with thanks be to God. Okay? Okay. Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set before the crowd. And they were a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people. And he set them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Lamanthu. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the river now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. So we're in our, I believe, our 20th week uh, in the book of, of Mark and working our way through it um, and getting close to kind of an important nexus point, important hinge, uh, right in the middle of the book of Mark, almost everything. We'll see, we'll rest, we'll get more of that in a second there. Um, but we're also getting closer this week to answering the question that Mark has been asking. I'll remind you over the past uh, weeks, of course, we had a break over the summer for our summer of the Psalms. But over our time in Mark, we've said that Mark has an underlying um, question he's wanting us to answer. He's asking us all throughout this, and he's bringing to the surface over and over again. That who is this man? Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? 
And in fact, today's passage, uh, I believe, answers that question something that Mark wants us to finally truly understand. I think for the audience, he wants us as the readers to get it. But we'll see, of course, that the disciples are still going to miss it. Uh, they're not there yet. Uh, but we as readers, if we pay attention, should be able to see some of that. In fact, um, I had a funny uh, thought this week, because yeah, it being October, and, and not really that scary movies myself, but I know that a lot of scary movies are horror movies. There's always a moment, there's often a moment, where the thing, the creature, the person pursuing our heroes who are trying to escape and survive, is there right behind them. And you can see it. You're watching the screen. You can see it behind them. You know, Jason Voorhees is there, and 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 all these people are in the foreground. And they're scared. And they're like, "What do we do? Where do we go?" And they make their own choice. Of course, they always make their own choice. They go up the stairs. They go into the bar with all the chainsaws. They go their own place, right? But the point is, we can see what's going on, and they're missing it. And we want to scream at the screen, turn around. He's right there. Run out the door. Get out. Why are you going to creep tap in the woods in the middle of, of you know by yourself anyway? It's a bad idea. Okay, so. As the people experiencing this from the outside, we can see something that the people inside cannot. Um, maybe it's an overblown illustration, but I think that in this case, the disciples are still missing something critical about who Jesus is. But we as readers, uh, as Mark has laid this out for us, we, I believe, can begin to see um, that final answer as we go into what we'll see next week will be a very big moment when, when Pastor Mike gets to it. So, um, so I believe Mike mentioned. Uh, previously, by the way, more than keep in mind here uh, as we go forward. Um, but a refresher, I believe Mike mentioned this, that many scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark is, in many ways, also the Gospel of Peter, the Apostle Peter. Um, from Scripture, we know that Peter considered Mark, uh, actually his first epistle, uh, Peter mentioned to Mark as his son. Um, we believe a spiritual son in this case. He sees him as his son that he has spiritually adopted and raised, right? We also see uh, in Acts, uh, you know, if you remember the moment where Peter is in prison and then the chains fall off and he gets and he walks and he's like, oh, I guess we're leave. And he goes and he goes to the house and knocks on the door and they don't believe, like the servant opens the door and is like, ah, it's a ghost. And they, you know, and like, we're praying for Peter, but we miss the fact that he's outside. That's actually John Mark's house. That's, that's if you pay attention to the scripture there, Mark's house is where they're meeting, his parents, his mother's house, I guess. And um, so we have an opinion there, an idea that, that Mark and John have known each other and, and have this mentor-mentee relationship. They've known each other probably since Mark was very young. Um, and in fact, we'll see toward the end of Mark that Mark kind of mentions himself in his own book, although he doesn't give himself a name. Many people believe that he talks about himself later briefly uh, in another book. We'll get to that in the future. So, so worth remembering here that when we read this passage today and we go through this, keep in our mind, all through Mark, when there's embarrassing details about the apostles, when there's lots of them, and we'll see quite a few today, of uh, them being a little boneheaded and not getting things, and we're like, why don't you get this? It's right there. What are you missing? And you'll see, as we just read, Christ asks this question as well. Um, that it's interesting that, that these embarrassing details are included. Uh, because, you know, this is coming from Peter. Peter most likely yelled, told Mark um, in, in exactly everything happened. Most of the other things that, that Mark uses in his gospel probably came directly from Peter's word. So, as we're remembering that, keep that in your mind as we go today. So, um, I guess I put the greater emphasis on the fact that there's a lot of uh, foolishness on the part of the disciples. Um, so, moving forward here, how does Mark want us to answer this question, this underlying question, based on this passage of who Jesus is? Examine the passage and find out. So, our first part today is the feeding of the 4,000. Um, so, let's start with the setting. When and where is this happening? You see the passage says, in those days. Okay, well, immediately, this kind of points us back to uh, the, the end of Mark 7, right? So here we are, we are in Mark 8, we just began the passage, and, and of course, you know, these designations of Mark 7 8 weren't originally here, they've been added to help us find our place in the Bible. But we immediately know to look back, okay? Where were they at before, in those days? So we have to say, well, where were they at, okay? Well, we had talked, Mike had mentioned previously, this is a phase of Jesus' ministry where he's kind of spending a lot of time with the Gentiles, it would seem. Within still the region of, of, of Judah, within still the region um, um, of Samaria and all those places that are mostly Jewish settled, but the Decapolis, as we saw before, is a, is a set of ten uh, towns that were settled by Greeks, by Gentiles, right? Um, and we saw the Syrophoenician woman recently in her faith about how even the dogs get the scraps, and we saw his, his praise of her faith there. Um, and then, of course, this is where we know that the demoniac, we've said a few times, was after. He was healed previously. And so 
uh, the word of Christ has spread. People have heard about this guy, Jesus. Despite the fact that he tried to keep it secret, he told the guy he healed last week we saw he healing uh, a deaf mute man who couldn't speak nor hear. And he said, hey, don't go tell anyone. And that apparently didn't work. Uh, people heard, people came, right? So, so near the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the capitalists, um, you know, we, we see this region is full of Jews and Gentiles, um, and it's very interesting, it's a nice mixed group, right? So here we are, the crowd, the, the stage is set, we know where we're at, uh, what's happening? Well, a crowd is gathered, again, probably because um, <laughs> the, no one's been very quiet about Jesus' presence, people are talking about it, right? Um, and so what do they do? They come, and they gather, and they stay with him uh, for three days, it says. It's interesting to see that how long they would sit under for three days. It's rather amazing. Um, so again, these people have come to ask a question. And it's that same underlying question that Mark is asking us. Who is this man Jesus? And so they came from all over the region to find out. Let me ask you a question here, though. Have we read this story already? Anyone recognize this? The being of the fourth out seems really familiar. Oh well, it seems like I've heard this before. No, no, maybe, was it 5,000 last time? Maybe it's a, it's a different story, isn't it? It's interesting. Uh, it's funny that, that people actually, uh, you know, these are these are two very similar, but, but at the same time, very different stories, right? And so back in Mark 6, we, which was actually before the summer, so some time ago now, uh, in, in our, our local uh, sermon series, but uh, but not so long ago in the book of Mark, and not maybe not so long ago in time in the music ministry, we have the feeding of the 5,000, right? There's a lot of things that are similar, but also some very important distinctions here we're going to talk about in a second between the two events. Um, so, is it possible this is a variant account of the same event? Some scholars throughout history have tried to argue that it is, but I think it's very unlikely. In fact, um, you know, they tried to argue that, well, maybe Mark, uh, maybe later scribes messed up and got a copy error and mixed up two copies of the same story, and then over time they got separated. And then when they tried to correct, maybe they corrected Jesus later when he said, oh, you know, because he'll refer back to both events in the event of it here, which we saw in red. Um, I think it's exceptionally unlikely because there's so many differences that are distinct about the two events. And we're talking about differences in location, right? Um, the duration of how long people were there, and the people of the 5,000, they were there for one day, right? And then they were fed. And this, they were there for three days, many of them near fainting, right? Before, you know, they, and they were in the middle of nowhere. There was a location difference, too. Now, the thing about that was also kind of out there, but it seems to imply that maybe there was town close that they could send into town and they could maybe try to get food. Here, it said that they're in the wilderness place, in other words, desert, right? Reminds us of, of Israel going through the desert in the middle of nowhere in a wilderness without anything nearby, right? Nothing close enough to get food from it, um, Accounts of the crowd, 4,000 men versus 5,000 men. Plus, assorted women and children. We have no idea how many were actually the case, right? Um, the number of bread and fish were different, right? Um, how many leftovers were different, right? Um, you know, the, the, the words for basket, you should have the word for basket in both these two accounts for the leftovers is different as well, um, and consistently different. So, this account of the feeding of 4,000 is found both in Mark and Matthew. Um, in both cases, a different word is used for the leftover baskets. Um, but it's the same different part in both cases. So in both cases with the 4,000 feeding is taught us in scripture. This different word, we'll talk about in a second, for baskets used. Whereas in all the cases where the feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned, I think in almost all four gospels are mentioned the feeding of the 5,000, um, a, a different, again, a different word is consistently used in all those cases. So there's a difference. We're clearly saying they store the remains in a certain type of the leftover type of basket, and it's the same in these accounts, right? And across the different, the different accounts of them. Um, we see a difference in how Jesus is exchanged with the disciples, right? Uh, in one case, um, Jesus actually initiates that, hey, you know, uh, what should we do about this? In the other case, it's the disciples who go up and say, hey, this crowd's getting hungry, what are we going to do? Right? We have kind of uh, who initiates the question for us, right? Um, so why do people, by the way, think, though, that this could possibly be the same event? So many differences. Well, um, some are asking the question, I think, and they are concerned that, uh, how could the disciples be so dumb, right? It seems to be the case that they just went through this. You know, don't they know um, that certainly, certainly he could provide for this guy? He did it before. How have they forgotten already? But I think they're kind of missing a, a point here because I, I don't think that's really what's going on here. So, um, first, I think 
to be fair, these people do under, underestimate a little bit human denseness. Sometimes we can be a little dumb, that's true. Um, and apart from the Holy Spirit, we're often blind to the truths that are right in front of us. Second, um, it is also possible for disciples to simply thought it would be kind of um, maybe a little bit presumptuous to ask Jesus to do a miracle again, like to do the same miracle over again. Or maybe they, there's also kind of a difference in the exchange they have. It almost seems as though um, their tone is not so much, how are we going to feed these people? Which is basically what they said in the Deacon 5000. They say, where can we profit the money to feed these people? Right? It's actually what they, what they the same thing is about the financial ability. How do we possibly have the money to feed these people, right? In this case, the tone is like, hey, what are you going to do about it, Jesus? Maybe, maybe getting that, hey, he may do this miracle again. Jesus, what's your, what's your plan, right? And Jesus asks them, how much bread you got? And they respond with the amount, and he, he clearly says, I know what I'm doing. Get the bread, let's do this then, right? So we have a distinction that clearly means it's a different event. Um, one more thing about the crowd. Right? And this is kind of worth pointing out historically, I think. And the the 5,000, most historical accounts would say that it was in a very Jewish part of, of Judah, which most of Judah was. Right? Uh, likely it was a crowd of Jewish people. Right? It's the people who come to see Christ. Uh, but the composition of this crowd is a little different. Now, we don't know if it was entirely Gentile. We said before this region of the capitalists had a lot of Greek Gentile people living there. But we also know that it was a very mixed society, a surprisingly mixed place for part of Judah, where uh, Jewish people and Gentile people didn't mix regularly. So there is a tradition of saying that this um, passage, this describes a case where this is kind of like the 5,000 for the Jews and the 4,000 for the Gentiles. And maybe that's true. We can't know for sure from Scripture. It's not said there. You would think maybe that if Mark is writing his gospel in many ways to the Gentiles, which he seems to be doing, you know, kind of describing things that Jews would probably get, the Gentiles would miss at times. Um, so he's kind of adding extra help. He, may have, he might have said something like that. Oh, by the way, there's a really a lot of Gentiles in this crowd. But what we know from the region is, even if it wasn't entirely Gentile people, there was probably a lot of Gentile people there. A lot of Greeks were in this crowd, almost certainly, because just the region, just because of the mix-up, right? Well, the makeup of the region. Um, so if you're looking at a, kind of a meaning in that, I think it's always kind of to think about that. We have an interesting picture, I think, in some ways, of, of the church, of what the intention for the church is to be. Um, that it wasn't going to be, this is the mystery that Paul talks about, right? It's not just Jew or Gentile, but both. The, the vision of the church is that uh, the wall of separation and hostility between God and man and man and man is torn down by Christ's sacrifice. So just to think about, move forward to the difference there as well. Uh, so one more difference between this account and the 5,000 account. Um, a final interesting thing here that kind of hints toward the making of the crowd is that now if you look over here, when he, he blesses the bread and breaks it and gives it out, then he blesses, blesses the fish and breaks the fish and gives it out, right? There's a note here that Jewish tradition then and now, so still today, uh, involves the blessing for the bread. It's actually part of uh, the, the, the Thanksgiving they offer before a meal. But it doesn't tend to go beyond that. I mean, it, we could argue it means all the, the food, but the blessing itself is a blessing for the bread. Thank you for our daily bread type thing, right? Um, but here we have Christ clearly also blessing the fish separately. Um, it's interesting to think that maybe in this case he's taking an opportunity to teach something new, gratefulness um, for what God Christ, something that his Gentile audience at the time would have no concept for. They probably never thought of thanking God for anything like that. Um, so here's an illustration of thanking God for the food, uh, both the bread and the fish, for all of it. And recognizing that this miracle is going to happen, this multiplying of the food that's going to happen, is clearly from God. And so he is worthy of thanks for it. So things that keep going. So, one more difference. What was the difference in purpose here? Right? What did Jesus see in these crowds? I don't know if you remember back to the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6, but he calls them something. He says he looked for the crowd, and his heart is moved for them. And he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Right? These are primarily Jewish, right? At the time of the 5,000. They are Jewish people who have the knowledge of God. They know who should, they should be following, but they are without a shepherd. No one is leading them. No one is leading them to, to God. In, in, in true knowledge of God, right? And he has compassion and leads them and then feeds them 
um, as one who wants to lead them in, in this leadership in that case, right? Um, whereas in this case, we see that they've had an intense, um, different circumstances, intense teaching ministry, three days. Even if they showed up with food, which many of them probably did, they had, hey, Jesus is coming, we hear he's out in the wilderness, let's go find him, he does amazing things, grab some food, let's go. You know, even they packed a quick bag and ran, many of them probably did. I mean, they're not, they're not foolish, right? Um, they went. But three days later, they're still listening to him teach, and all that food's gone, right? They're getting hungry, because they don't plan for that long. But nevertheless, they're getting such amazing spiritual food already that they have used up what physical food they had, there wasn't any, and, and now they're hungry, and it's been three days. And so this time, he's moved simply out of compassion for their hunger. I think it's worth saying that truly, um, these are people who sought first the kingdom of God. Which we hear that if you seek first from God, all these things will be added unto you. We have a people here who clearly, by this illustration, have spent three days under Jesus' teaching, seeking first the kingdom. And so now all these things, their hunger to be taken care of. Um, and I love this too, that I kind of think a little bit about Mary and Martha did this, right? They chose the good portion. They chose to sit under the master, even when the food ran out. Even when all practical concerns would say, you should really head out there, you're going to run out of food, you're going to starve. They stayed. And they listen, and they learn, and Jesus provided them. So, what are the results of this miracle, right? Again, slight difference from the 5,000, but still very similar. Seven baskets left over, um, as opposed to the 12 before. Now, as I mentioned before, the word for basket is different here, and this is more of an interesting point. The 12 baskets from the feeding of the 5,000 would have possibly, the word used there is closer to like a, a, a traveling uh, suitcase, it lumps a wicker suitcase that you know, a traveler would use, often like a traveling salesperson or someone who travels for a living back in this time, because there are people who did that, they traveled place to place uh, for a living, they would carry their goods, their, their, their belongings in, in a kind of a wicker basket, uh, almost like a suitcase, right? And that's actually the word used of the 12, back in the, the leftover bags, um, in the people of 5,000, which implies something. Maybe those are the disciples' own bags. They would have been traveling with Jesus. They would have had each, probably at least one bag they each carried, 12 of them. It seemed kind of interesting that they ended up, I guess they dumped out all their clothes and filled it up with bread. And that's what they had left over. Not a bad exchange, I guess. Um, so it's, a, it's just a traveling basket, is the word for a traveling basket. Uh, here, though, it's more of a flexible bag. The word used here is a flexible bag. Probably borrowed from the crowd. Some of the crowd, maybe they brought their own food in these bags, and now they were out. And so they borrowed seven of them from the crowd and filled up all of the remains, right? All leftovers. Um, so, again, as I said before, the same distinction is made in Matthew that is like this passage is, is uh, or this story is told. So, everyone ate, we see in this passage, until they were satisfied. Um, I think it's, it's interesting here to think that they weren't just, the word here, satisfied, of course, we're talking about physically satisfied, but they sat with Jesus for three days. I would argue that they're almost certainly also spiritually satisfied as well. They have been filled up physically and spiritually uh, by Christ's ministry at this point, right? Um, <laughs> so the question comes again, who is a man? Who is this man? Who is this man who could fill up this crowd, satisfy this crowd in this way? Um, it's funny, based on the numbers we see here, there is a tendency to look for meaning in numbers. Right? And we can go overboard with this sometimes. Um, uh, is there meaning to the 12 baskets in the 5,000? The meaning of the seven baskets over in the in the 4,000? Maybe. Um, you read sources, you'll find that all the 12 is clearly the number of completion. All, all 12 tribes were fed, in a sense, right? But the number for the feeding of the 4,000, well, seven is the number of completion. It's, it's significant for, for most cultures. One commentary already even said, oh, it may prefigure the seven leaders of the Hellenistic church, the Greek church, okay, maybe. Uh, we don't know. We can't necessarily look at the scripture and say, oh, these have meaning. Um, they're significant. I think at the end of the day, though, what's important is that Mark and Matthew are both recording this accurately. The details matter because they want people to know this happened. Jesus indeed ministered to these people um, and fed them and had this amazing amount left over. Uh, so, more of the numbers can set up attraction of the meaning of the passage. So, let's back up a second and get back. So what are the truths we can see in this whole event? This event occurs, 4,000 are fed, plus women and children. Um, what are the truths that come out of that? What do we see in this, right? How does Mark point us to who this man, this Jesus, is? Well, first, as I said, clearly, and I've already said this, I'm just repeating for those that complete this, they sought the kingdom first. And how beautiful is that they were born for? Second, we clearly see that 
Jesus is involving his disciples in the process, which is interesting. He is, uh, let's see how the he explains his purpose to him um, and why he's looking to He says he has compassion on the crowd. He tells them, guys, I have compassion on this crowd. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's my purpose of this. Right? He explains the problem. Hey, they've been for three days. They're hungry. They need food. Right? Um, he engages them in the question, what do we do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Okay? He asks them, well, how much do we have? Do we have it? And they respond back. Okay, okay, he says, okay, you distribute this, give it out to them, be involved in the process. Okay, great. Clearly, he's involving them in every step because he wants them to see something about who he is. But as we see, and we'll see soon again, they're not yet quite getting it. Right? Um, for us, those readers, the picture is forming, though. Uh, like in a horror movie, we can kind of see that there's something behind them, um, but they're not seeing it yet. And we're scratch shouting at the at the page. Hey, don't you get it? Come on, don't you see what's happening here? Go on in a second. Uh, and also, I'll say for Mike's sake, next week, much of this will, will come to a head. So kind of pre previewing uh, a little bit of what Mike's going to talk about next week. So what happens next? Well, as you've seen on a few occasions already, uh, Jesus gets in a boat and moves on to the region. I almost hope that uh, this this passage could be almost has a theme of Jesus gets in boats and leaves places. It happens a couple times at least, right? And we see that all throughout the section. It's in a boat, moves on, right? So it's in a boat, moves on, comes to a new region, uh, and then let's see what happens. So I'm going to read again verse 11 and 12 and 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left it, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Again, short little interlude. Some Pharisees show up. But I think this is an interlude that is not without some buildup. Now, not in this passage, but previously, you've seen these times a few times before. I don't know if you remember back in Mark 3. It's been a while since we've been there. But Mark 3, uh, chapter, uh, verse 22 through 30, we see that the scribes, called scribes from Jerusalem, where you've seen scribes from Jerusalem, they accuse Jesus of performing miracles. Remember what power they said he would need to use? With the power of Beelzebub. They said, oh, he performs miracles by the power of Beelzebub. And they're, they're basically accusing him of using satanic power, demonic power, to do the miracle he's done, right? Okay, so that was the first time kind of this interaction here, right? Then, a little bit later, not too long ago, uh, Pastor Mike spoke about this uh, whole question about cleanliness and their rules about cleanliness and why don't your disciples wash their hands, right? Uh, in, in chapter 7, the very beginning, first five uh, verses, the Pharisees are now joined by, again, scribes from Jerusalem. We have this connection. They've showed up and caused problems. They've joined the Pharisees now. Uh, and they accuse Jesus and disciples of eating with a foul hand, at which point he basically destroyed all the sacred cows and said, no, no, these things you hold as sacred are not sacred, right? Um, and now they're showing up again, right? They're kind of chasing them around, and they're demanding a sign, okay? And on the surface, and I think it's pretty interesting, a Jewish contemporary um, might assert that the, Fer uh, the Phil uh, Pharisees are justified in doing this. So why would that be? Well, in one sense, it's biblical. But we'll get to that. Um, they were asking for a, in the quotes here, a sign from heaven, right? But asking for a miracle. Because the, the obvious first, and I read this myself, like, well, duh, he just fed a bunch of people. You've seen him heal. You've seen him do these amazing things, right? What are you missing, Pharisees? And to be fair, it's all out. Um, but they're asking for a miracle. They've seen miracles, right? Um, they're asking for a sign from heaven. So, uh, from historical context, the Old Testament, um, the demand of the sign was actually somewhat to be expected of anyone who was a prophet, right? Uh, in Deuteronomy 13 18, uh, the scripture actually explains how to test a prophet, right? Um, and usually, uh, this would come on the case of prophet gives some, the Lord says this, this will happen, and it's some really far future event, right? And often, the sign then would be, they would then say, also, this thing's going to happen now. And indeed, it would happen soon as a verification that his further prophecy was true, right? And of course, if he makes a prophecy that fails, they're stoned, right? So you don't just blazingly say, I'm a prophet, trust me, you better be a prophet of God, right? Um, so this is the type of sign they're asking for. They want an authentication that indeed his authority came from God, right? Uh, a sign is evidence of trustworthiness, right? A public de uh, definite, definitive proof that God is with him. Right? A, uh, a miracle is evidence of power. There's a distinction there, right? 
Um, so they're not questioning really the new miracle. They've seen the miracles. Um, they're questioning the authority with which he does those miracles. Um, I'd say the demand is equivalent to, um, we'll, see, we'll see later here in Mark 11, 30, a little ahead of ourselves in the future, but they'll again ask um, by what authority he does these things. They're, they don't give up on this. They're holding on to this question. What authority do you, where does the teaching come from? Who gives you authority to say these things? Because he's already said much of what they believe with this edifice they've built up of, of additional laws and traditions is wrong. Is not of God, right? So here's a question. Hold up here. Why would that accept these miracles as a sign? I mean, okay, clearly if you have the power to do miracles, that must be sufficient to say that power came from God, right? Um, I mean, how could you do miracles apart from God? Well, again, remember what they said in Mark 3.22. They already have their out here. They have their reason, their excuse. They think the power doesn't come from God. And the scribes that came from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. So as we said already, they already have this idea. They have their reason. He could have power, but not be from God. They can hold these two things at once. Those guys have a lot of power to do major things, um, but he's also throwing away all the things we say are sacred and important. So to put these two together, what, what makes this picture? How do we fit these bundle pieces together? Because obviously he can't be after wrong about this stuff, right? So what is the his power must have come from God? Where does it come from? Well, um, Satan must come from Satan, right? Which is funny to think about because I can't think of a time in the Old Testament where we clearly see Satan do anything to help him by power, right? I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous argument, but they still are going to hold to it. I think even if they, I don't know if they believe it or if they just need something to hold on to, but they have, uh, they have said already where they think his power comes from. They're going to hold on to that because it does hold on to their power, hold on to the tradition, hold on to the things they believe to be true. Um, it's, it's funny. The, the, so how does Jesus respond to this? Right? So we have this picture here of Jesus. He responds not with a sign, but with a sigh. A deep, deep sigh. A sigh of spirit. A sigh of having indignation and grief. Mentioned this before with, with before, and in, in, in Mark three, um, I don't know if you remember the story of Mark three, where he healed a man with a withered hand, but it was on the Sabbath, and and so they were going to test him. Oh, will he will he, will he heal on the Sabbath? Because obviously that means he can't be from God, right? And he at the same time looks around them with anger, read at the heart of the heart. The scripture says in Mark three, uh, uh, chapter five, right, and verse five, um, grieved at their hardness of heart. I think this is the same expression, same emotion coming out in his grief and his frustration with them, right? Um, he knows their hearts are full of hostility and unbelief. And he knows that they're behind the demand with that previous accusation that his power is demonic in origin. He knows they're still holding to this as they're out, right? Um, so, uh, it's interesting, that, as I said, to figure out they really believe that, but that is what they're holding to at the very least. Um, but here's the question. Let's say he did give them a sign. What would have happened? What would have, what would have happened if he had said, fine, here's your sign. God literally speaking from heaven. Doves fly out of the thing. I don't know. They, they literally get pulled into heaven and God says, this is my son. Shut up. I don't know what would have happened. But let's say he actually truly gave them a sign they could not deny, right? Um, even then, I think their hearts would not have been changed. They made up their mind. They made up their mind. And no sign they would have explained anything away, right? Um, even if he should decide he was, he was a prophet of God, which of course he was, though not nearly a prophet, right? Um, uh, remember, these are the people descended from the very people that in Matthew, we, uh, we read this here, Matthew 23, Matthew 36. This is their ancestors. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you built the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus, witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogue and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachim, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all of these will come upon this generation. We already have Christ and condemned them as being the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. So they're saying, prove you're a prophet. Well, what's going to happen if he does? Well, 
Not a good track record so far. Kill all the ones that came before. Um, interestingly enough, uh, so Jesus refuses them both on, I think, two grounds here. Historical grounds, which we've partially seen already, and theological grounds, right? Um, so they want to judge Jesus by the norms, first the historical grounds, the norms that of scribal interpretation that they've been used to, right? So if Jesus had granted them a sign, they would have sanctioned him according to Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. You can read this as well, okay? If a prophet or a dreamer uh, of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that tells you comes to pass, and he, if he says, let's go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord. Your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet uh, or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way to which, in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Jesus knew that he would provide a sign and showed them that he was a prophet. They would immediately say, ah, but you call us to do things that we know are against God's will. You are a, 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 not a real prophet. You are a test from God. And they would execute them, which is essentially what they're going to do. Right? He'll, he'll say uh, clearly that I am that I am, you know, and they're going to be like, well, that's, that's blasphemy. Kill him. Right? And this is what's going to happen. So they have their out. They know exactly how they're going to condemn him. Even if he provides a sign. So he refuses to work for It's also worth pointing out that uh, he's not under their authority or direction, but only that of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we actually saw earlier in, in chapter 1, verse 11, and chapter 3, verse 28. Their authority does not apply to him. He's not something you have a category for. Jesus already declared that scribal norm is done with. We saw that when we talked about the, the cleanliness just a few weeks ago, right? In chapter 7. Uh, and, and they are not happy with his throwing away of all the tradition and all their the things that they think are so important. So in their refusal, the refusal uh, for historical reasons, he rejects their pretension. Uh, their pretension set himself up against the Messiah himself. Now theologically, the demand for unmistakable proof that God was at work in Jesus' ministry is just an expression of unbelief in this case. Uh, they don't believe. They're trying to put Jesus to a category that cannot hold him. He is not, as I said, merely a prophet. Does he say things that are true? Is he a prophet of the truth? Of course. He is not merely a prophet. Arguably, did not even have a category for who Jesus was, although they should have, if you think about it. Since, as Jesus would later explain to the believers on the road to Emmaus, all of Scripture attested to him. You can read that in Luke 24, verse 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the, that the Christ should suffer these things and then entered the glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The very that access to the exact same passages, they could read exactly what Jesus explained to these uh, believers in the road to Emmaus, right? It all pointed to him. They should have had a category that explained who he was, but they didn't. More than that. <laughs> the gospel we are called to a radical faith provide, provided, empowered, and quickened by the Holy Spirit, not radical proof. Now, there are many, of course, many proofs uh, of God, of Scripture, of, of the truth of the historicity of the Bible. Um, as an armchair apologist, I love these proofs. I, I love reading them and studying them, and, and they, they strengthen my faith, right? Um, but no one comes to Christ merely due to the evidence. They come through the power of the Holy Spirit, working through evidence, working through Scripture on them. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings Christ, not just evidence. So radical evidence is never going to be enough, no matter how ironclad it is, because it's a heart condition, not a mind condition. And it was very much a heart condition with the um, Pharisees as well. In the New Covenant, such signs as these they demanded have no place. We are not waiting for further revelation. We don't need further revelation. We have all the revelation we need today. Um, all that is necessary for faith and life on this side of Christ's return are already ours in Scripture. The Word of God is ours. We have it. So the Pharisees are wrong to demand a sign. Um, 
Jesus was not nearly a prophet, as we said. Okay, back to Mark's question. But who is he? Who was he? Who is he? Uh, through the content of these verses and at Mark's version, we can begin to see again more of who he is. Like in the Harm movie, again, we still see this truth begin to emerge. We see what's going on that they're missing. The people here, the Pharisees, now are in the Harm movie as well. They're, they're probably people thinking of the Harm movie. Um, they're in the Harm movie as well, and they're also missing the point. They don't see what's right behind them. Um, so, how does this respond? Uh, and regardless of, 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 of how the Pharisees are thinking, where their headspace is here, Jesus, after his refusal, gets in a boat and gets back on the water and leaves them behind with their own boat. This is our next section. Now they, um, now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Sorry, the boat. Pick up in, in the next section. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? So, this final passage is a more intimate set on the boat between Jesus and his disciples. And it picks up immediately as we saw right after and gives Mark's word immediately to up, immediate action. They get in the boat, they get on the water, and this happens right away. On the boat, right? Um, in this passage, the disciples' lack of understanding comes finally comes to the forefront. We're seeing, you know, they've seen these things, they've been involved, and Jesus is going to call them out on their, on their failure to understand. And we'll see more of that. Now, the reason that both Matthew and Mark um, keep these three passages together, I think, because I think what happens here matters in the context of the feeding of the 4,000, the context of the conversation of the Pharisees, of course, and of course, this conversation he's about to have with the public that we just had here, they go together. So Matthew and Mark keep these three passages, these three stories, in sequence together because they're inter interconnected, right? So let me give you a proposed kind of full context for this part of the passage here. Jesus abruptly, and this is my topic here, but the, Jesus abruptly returned to the lake, leaving the Pharisees. So we know it's sudden. He's like, he's like, that word immediately. Like, he says, I storms off. I'm not giving you a sign. He goes to the boat, gets on, disciple join him, and they take off, right? Really sudden, okay? In their haste, they probably bring some more bread. They, and they're thinking, oh, darn it, we forgot to more bread. Right? Now, Jesus, on a whole different thing, thinking about his discussion with the Pharisees, although certainly he Jesus in their hearts still, because of this, but they were the headspace as well. He takes a moment to warn them about the leaven of the Pharisees. While the experience was fresh, so they just saw the experience, they were all fresh, just talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. The disciples interpret the word as a reproach and quarrel over who has to bring bread. Right? They have this discussion, read argument. Um, about, hey, it's your fault. You're supposed to bring the bread. No, you're the bread carrier. Well, it was your basket. Well, I don't know. So suddenly they realize, not one loaf of bread again. They're in the boat, and Jesus is talking about bread, and they're feeling really guilty. Like, oh, darn, I forgot the bread. All right? So then he has to approach them. But he doesn't approach them for the lack of bread, um, even for their misunderstanding of what he's talking about, right, necessarily. He, he's, he approaches them, we'll see, mostly for their failure to understand who Huh. Let's get to that. Um, funny about the bread, as I said, he didn't even bring up the bread, right? He was giving already kind of a parable, maybe a one word parable, using the word um, leavening, right? And they're already going to the wrong place. Um, remember, he had just proven to them, it can't have been very long, he proved to them that he could make bread as needed. He didn't worry about their physical needs. Moreover, if you remember, not too long ago, he sent them out. He sent them out amongst the people to preach and to, to do miracles. He gave them to go. And he, what instruction did he give? He said, you know, bring, bring like your, your cloak and one cloak and bring your staff and, and wear your sandals and dust your sandals off of some liver fusion, the whole thing, right? And include they just don't bring any money, don't bring any bread. I'll provide it for you. They know at this point he can provide all they need. 
but they're still missing the point. Um, so Jesus approaches them for his way to understand his meaning. Um, and it's interesting that, uh, <laughs> that they, of course, get an argument blaming each other. It's not surprising. Um, so here's a question, though. Before we get too deep into review, to making fun of the disciples and, and kind of uh, seeing why Jesus rebuked them for lack of understanding, what did Jesus mean by this table? Let's figure it out ourselves first. So he was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. In context, what is he talking about here? So, um, leavening, right? We know what leavening is, right? Talk about bread. Bread rises because you put leavening in it, right? Uh, leavening is, is uh, a kind of yeast, right? You put it in the bread, it gets dissolved around, and it causes air bubbles to form as it bakes, and you end up with like big fat bread, right? As opposed to flat, and kind of tasteless bread. Um, actually, flat bread can be very good. But leaven makes bread better. Uh, having said that, uh, it's often used as a picture of an unseen or pervasive influence, uh, a metaphor uh, for something being able to affect some small, minute amount of something being able to affect what's in it, right? Um, a small amount of something goes a long way. A small amount of something can make a huge effect on the, on the host in which it's found, right? Um, it's not always a bad thing, the word leaven, right? I mean, because I love eating my own bread, right? Um, uh, Jewish, Hellenistic, Jewish and Hellenistic tradition in circles um, did often use it as a, as a metaphor for corruption. Corruption means that it spreads and, and, and works throughout and destroys all something, right? Um, but that's not always the case. Uh, Jesus, for example, in Matthew 13, um, told a kingdom of the parable of heaven and actually described it as um, like a uh, woman who took and hid in three measures of flour, a little leavening, until it was all leavened. And it worked its way through the dough um, and I guess made things better. There's a picture there of um, the church, the kingdom of God, expressed through the church at the time, working through society, and, and, and um, until it includes and all things, right? So it's not always uh, a bad picture. It, at the very base, the picture of leavening is a picture of something, like I said, spreading throughout, right? Small amount of the long way. In this context, though, uh, we can be pretty certain that the leavening has a negative connotation. Um, he's not warning about the, you know, the great bread that the Pharisees make. He's warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees, right? Which clearly, and connotation is not good. Okay? Um, now, we can also understand a lot of what Jesus meant because we uh, know the frustration interaction he had just had right, with them. And that, in the day, that uh, frustrating interaction he had was really about um, his authority, about who he was, right? And their lack of belief. Um, so I think here that given that the leavening experience was at least a lack of belief and a demanding of signs, uh, moreover, the evil disposition of belief that the man's signs of the judgment had already been passed. So in this case, their leavening, they already had decided who Jesus was, but they still demanded signs and proofs, right? Um, another word for this that we see throughout scripture is hard-heartedness, right? They had hardened their hearts to who Jesus was, to whom Jesus was. So it didn't matter what sign he showed them. They had made the decision already, right? Their unbelief was that pervasive. Um, their hard-heartedness, by the way, we talk about leavening, working through, you could argue their hard-heartedness would indeed work its way through their culture. It already had them anyway, right? But moreover, we see they were influenced. When Christ is crucified, we'll see later in Mark, right? Who is the servant of the crown? Who, like leavening working through a crowd of people moves out and says crucify him until everyone's shouting right um similarly uh who spread the rumors and lies about his resurrection after the resurrection right oh we'll say the disciples will lie to this episode body and we're told in scripture that story is still told to this day whenever when the scripture was written right how many people were led astray from belief in jesus by the miracle of his resurrection um by this line, they said, oh no, we were told that they just stole his body. You know, this is a fact, they very stole his body. Their influence, like an evil cancer, had spread and would spread. Um, so we see that this belief was not sufficient in itself. They decided to spread to others. They didn't hold it in. They let everyone have that disbelief, that lack of belief in Jesus. But we're left with another question here. Why is Herod mentioned? That comes out of nowhere, right? He wasn't part of the previous conversation. Um, you know, beware the leavening of the Pharisees and Herod. Okay? Uh, Jesus, why Herod? Right? A couple thoughts on why this was maybe added, why, why Jesus mentioned Herod here, right? Um, first, the region. Chances are, if they were near Tiberias, 
uh, which is very likely considering where they were at in the boat. Um, that is where Herod Antipas, that's who Herod is thinking of here, that's where he, uh, he had his capital, that's where he lived. Um, so maybe just by region, saying, you know, we're this region, people have influence, Pharisees have influence, Herod has influence, you know, beware the leavening of the Pharisees in Herod, right? Another thing that might be why Jesus added Herod here is that we know from Luke 23, 8, that Herod was the kind of person who also demanded signs. He wanted to see a miracle. Show me a sign. Show me that you're really, you know, the son of God. Show me you're really the Messiah, right? Herod was that kind of person, and certainly Jesus knows that about him. In fact, there's probably been evidence before. One other possibility, though, is that Herod represented a different kind of unbelief. So the Pharisees had an unbelief hard-heartedness. Herod, I would say, has an unbelief of procrastination, of tomorrow. I'll put it off. There's always a day. I can wait a little bit longer. You know, he loved to listen to John the Baptist. Day after day, he was rebuked by John the Baptist. He had him in prison listening to him. And still he would go. And he would feel that, that little tickle in his, in his soul saying, his conscience saying, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, and, and he would still go, but he wouldn't make a decision. He wouldn't change. He wouldn't do anything right about it. He just waited and waited, listened and listened until time went by. Um, something about John speaking of truth to Herod pulled on him. But it never let the truth, but he never let the, but he never let the truth he heard or discovered he felt do it. He didn't do something about it. In the end, he held out too long and lost the opportunity to respond to John's call for repentance. Uh, like the seed choked by thorns or planted in rock, he didn't let the, the, the Holy Spirit um, uh, work its way through him. Um, so he was that seed choked. In any case, in the immediate context, Levine described a sinful disposition to believe only if signs were produced. That's the comment that we have here. And only when convenient to do so. Believing only when there's signs, always convenient. Um, belief because of a sign also leaves one vulnerable to only belief until the next sign. Right? Only believe the next sign. Because if, if your uh, proof of God is in miracles, then you have to keep seeing miracles, keep believing in Him, right? Um, the goalpost will constantly shift. Uh, when the signs run out, so does the faith. If it is really faith at that point. Um, but when we believe in the character of God, which does not change, that faith is lasting. Indeed, <laughs> like all sin, unbelief like this spreads and infects many. Um, but remember what John says, uh, sorry, Christ says in John uh, chapter 20, 29, blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. And interestingly enough, that's us in this room. We have been called to believe by the Holy Spirit. We've been called and we have not seen so blessed are we in that. Uh, in the end, Jesus' warning is a call to faith and understanding without signs. But again, disciples have missed the point and are pulling over it. <laughs> Given their position with Jesus, they should have perceived um, how important hearing his words were that they were missing. Now, what does Jesus do? Well, he condemns and rebukes them, right? Not for the discussion or argument. He doesn't care that there are. I mean, he probably doesn't care, but he, he's not. The reason to be is not because they're fighting over bread necessarily. That that argument they're having. Okay, he, I can provide for you. Please don't fight over that. All right. Um, it's not for the going to trouble to fully understand the meaning of his warning about the Pharisees. They he he will, he's explained to them fairly before they missed. Um, right. It's for their lack of faith and lack of spiritual perception which led to this discussion. The root of it was they didn't see who he was still. They didn't see who he was. Um, and to some extent, they didn't quite see why they were with him fully, why he was with them. They were still missing the thing he was engaging them in over and over again, the ministry, right? Um, they don't see who he is yet, but we'll get there. Mark is still asking, who is this man? And they are not yet coming up with the right answer. Uh, they are still blind and obtuse, and this grieves Jesus. Despite their experiences, right? Um, Jesus provided for them on the trip we said before. He said, hey, don't take bread. He provided for them. He just fed 4,000. He saw him feed 5,000. He's provided over and over again for everything, right? Um, they still don't see it. So, how does Jesus express his rebuke? He uses um, uh, questions. He actually questions them. 
right? Uh, repeat exposure to Jesus has made them dull to who he was. So he's going to say, let's review. Let's review that. Okay? Um, he asked them about their hearts of heart, their blindness of disposition. Um, and actually, it's interesting, this echoes so much of what God says of, of Old Testament Israel. Over and over again, we see in Jeremiah 5.21, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes, but see not, though ears, and hear not. Ezekiel 12, 2. Son of man, who dwell in the midst of rebellious house, who have eyes to see, but see not. Though ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Isaiah 6, 9. And he said, Go and say to his people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Through his questioning, his didactic method, if you will, Jesus leads them um, uh, back to the feedings that just have happened. And they have answers. They have ready answers. They know, they remember. Um, they have all the facts, the details. Oh, how many baskets after the 5,000? How many baskets after the 7,000? Or the 4,000? No, 12 baskets. 7 baskets. They got the right answers. Know this. Yeah. They've got the head knowledge. In the light of uh, Pharisees' demand, these feedings are actually the right kind of sign one of the Pharisees had no box or category for, but which pointed a secret about Jesus that, that really the disciples should see. On the surface, he provides with those secrets. Speaking we know that. Below the surface, this is the real secret that they're missing. He is the bread of life, which provides all necessary spiritual nourishment. The disciples recognized that Jesus had spiritual insight. That's why they were following him. That's why they left everything to follow him. They, he called them and they said, yes, I will follow you because you have spiritual insight. You know the truth, right? But they were so blinded by physical needs, they'd forgotten to seek first the kingdom of God. Um, and with the faith that as they did, their physical needs would be met. And they, they should know better. Like the crowds who have been satisfied twice already, they, they should have known. They, could have been, they, would, they didn't have to worry about these physical things like the bread. Yes, they should be fastidious with the money and the purse and the things like that. They should be concerned about the things. But those should all be secondary to seeking first the kingdom, to knowing who God is for the better portion, right? The married portion of Mary and Martha, the sitting under his teaching and knowing the others. So, the disciples have not yet understood the secret to which Jesus' words and works have pointed. Um, the secret, of course, is that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Lord. The question of understanding is that Jesus' method here, his goal, with disciples have not yet been obtained. Not yet. But points forward to the miracle of understanding of Peter's good confession, which we'll pass around to next week. We'll see that, right? Um, we're almost there. We're finally going to see the good confession the thing that points us to the beginning of understanding. Mark is building up to the answer to the question, who is this man? In a sense, this week, he has put together for us the things to scratch out and check off, to put a picture of Jesus. So we have, uh, we have a list. Just teacher? No. Teacher with authority and power? Check. Just a miracle worker? No, not that. I mean, most miracle workers were making spectacle at the time, right? They wanted the crowd to find them. They were seeking fame and fortune. Jesus did miracles and tell people, don't tell anyone about this. Keep it to yourself. His purpose, his final purpose, was bigger than being a miracle. But, someone who works miracles that no one's ever seen before? Check. Okay. Just a prophet? No. Scratch that off. Prophesize accurately? Yes. Check. Right? Um, prophecy, by the way, is, is a combination of two things we're pointing out here. We see the prophecy in the Bible. The majority of those prophets, by the way, didn't foretell the future. They did at points, but the majority of what they wrote was not foretelling, but what we call forthtelling. Basically saying, here's what Scripture says, this is what you're doing, this is what's going to happen. Scripture says it. You say you do this, this is going to happen, this is going to happen because of it, right? Pointing back to the truth of Scripture, forthtelling, right? Most of what the prophet said was clearly laying out, God said to do this, this is the consequence. You're doing this, this is the consequence. It's going to happen unless you repent. Repent, repent, right? Jesus was calling for repentance in the same way, right? He was foretelling and also foretelling. We see that the words of Jesus make many prophecies that come true. But in addition to that, his very life fulfilled so many prophecies. So just a prophet? No. Way more than a prophet. So much more than a prophet. The one who fulfills prophecy in his very actions. So, a final check mark this week. Compassion provided for his people? Check. We see these pictures of who this man is, and Mark wants us to figure this out. 
So who is he? Well, the crowds love him for wider in Egypt. He's a factor, but not everything. The Pharisees, at least someone, um, uh, <laughs> at the very least, someone who threatened their power authority. At the worst, at the most, Satan's power incarnate somehow. Right? Even if they really didn't believe that, who knows if they believe it or not. But they made the accusation for The disciples, who did they say he was? Well, clearly they didn't lose the power and authority. They followed him every day. Otherwise, though, they didn't entirely know still. But Mark, Mark is showing us what Jesus says. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the lamb who was slain for the sins of his people. Next week, this will come to a head a bit. Peter will finally make the confession of this fact. But even then, it's questionable if Peter truly understands the confession he makes. Clearly, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, works upon him to finish out. And I'll, I won't slow the mic's thunder for next week for that. But clearly, the Holy Spirit is what gives him that. Because Christ says it. You know, you did not come to your own. The Holy Spirit shows this to you, right? But the question is does he get it yet? Something's still missing. I think actually someone is still missing, and that is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Next week, Peter will make the confession, and we'll see that that finally this, this thing that Mark has brought us up to through all the scriptures so far, who is this man Jesus, will be answered, at least with the head knowledge. We'll know he is Messiah, the Lamb who is slain for his people. We know who he is, but do we know him? And apart from the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we can't truly know him. The Pharisees, um, who had every possible advantage in all knowledge of Scripture, failed because they lacked the knowledge of the Spirit. It's almost unfair in a lot of ways. Um, but then again, some of them did come to knowledge. We have stories of some of the Pharisees, right? Um, Nicodemus being an example. Um, Joseph Arimathea, Pharisees, who, who came to belief, right? Uh, teach the law, scribes and Pharisees, who came, came to belief. Uh, most famous would be Saul, who became Paul, right? Moved by his more Jewish name, um, Saul, who <laughs> didn't choose Jesus, Jesus chose him. Uh, his instrument to the Gentiles, right? He came to, he was a Pharisee of uh, uh, the school of Gamaliel, I believe. I'm trying to, right, I actually remember the name this morning of his teacher. We decided it was not Galadriel, so that was wrong. Uh, but Gamaliel, we decided that was the correct one. Uh, so, nevertheless, so we have, so some Pharisees will be saved. Some Pharisees will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be called into the kingdom. Um, but again, at this point, at this time in the story, someone, something is still missing in their knowledge. And that something is the Holy Spirit. That some person, that someone is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Ancient Israel fell over and over again with the law because they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Right? The disciples know Jesus personally. They spend every day with him in his presence. They still look at who he is. Because at that point, at least, they lack the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Even so, they have answered the call to follow him. And despite their failures to understand, their willingness, uh, their willingness to follow will be rewarded, as we'll see on Pentecost. The Spirit will come. So on this side of the cross, how about us? Do we, do you, truly know Jesus as Messiah? If he's your Savior, then yes, you do. And the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, guiding, revealing truth, and sanctifying you bit more, day by day, until Jesus returns, and you're fully sanctified. If not, but if you feel any desire to know him, any at all, then pray to him that he would open your eyes. I can guarantee that if you have any inclination to pursue him, then the Holy Spirit is already at work on you. He is the one who has put that desire there, and he will not fail to bring you into his kingdom of the sheep. Um, if you'd like to know more uh, about how to do that, uh, talk to myself or Mike or grab a brother or really brother or sister and ask them um, more about it. Because if you have that desire, then the Spirit is working on you. It's calling to you. Like we'll see next week, the ability for any of us to see Jesus as Messiah and Savior is, in fact, a miracle. A miracle that can't come from ourselves. It is a miracle of the Holy Spirit working through us. So today, let's pray in closing and thank Him for that. Lord, how great you are. Lord, you say in your scripture that uh, when you left the disciples to go back into heaven, you said it was better that you left, that the Holy Spirit would come. Indeed, Lord, that is true. Lord, because we have the privilege of living on this side of the cross. 
ones, being your called out ones, your redeemed people. Would you place the Spirit within, Lord, to lead us into knowledge, to sanctify us, Lord, to guide us in all truth, Lord. We can worry about the, the apostles and their failure to see who you were when, when you were with them, Jesus. Uh, we can feel profoundly sad and frustrated with the Pharisees, uh, Lord, but same time, we have the blessing, not only of the knowledge of who you are, but of your spirit within us, Lord. So thank you. I pray we would not discount the Holy Spirit. We would not forget the power that we have to know you better, that your word speaks to us because of the Holy Spirit, that our prayers are effective because of that Holy Spirit in us, guiding us in them, translating them for us into things, Lord, that we don't even know how to utter and ask for. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your salvation, Lord. Thank you that indeed, as, as we learn through Mark, Jesus is not just a prophet, not a miracle worker, uh, not a good teacher, not just a good teacher, but rather the good teacher, the only real final prophet, Lord, whose very words, as all prophets spoke for God, Jesus' very words were God, because he is God. Lord, that we uh, have the privilege of knowing Jesus in our salvation. Thank you for that. Let us never discount. I also pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, that uh, brings our time of communion. Um, and as always, uh, I, I will direct you in that as we do. But first, uh, we will do our confession of faith. Take it.